thanks again, as always, for listening. I appreciate anybody who listens to even one episode, and I appreciate everyone who's listened to so many. You keep me going. I'm so excited to share that now official on Patreon. You can find my Patreon page, become a member. It's patreon.com backslash chills at will podcast Peter Real. Again, that's patreon.com backslash chills at will podcast Peter Real. My name, of course, is P-E-T-E-R-R-I-E-H-L. Patreon.com backslash Chills at Will Podcast Peter Real. You can become a member today. The page is officially launched. There are three tiers of membership. Official patron membership tier is $3 a month. And with that, you'll get access to all interview episodes when they're published, mostly on Tuesdays with some published on Fridays. There are two to four interviews published each month. Lastly, you'll receive the monthly newsletter with reading recommendations, literary event calendar, and the Chills at Will podcast news, and you'll get a shout-out on a future episode. That is the official patron tier of membership for $3 a month. There's the $5 a month for the all-access patron. With the all-access patron membership, you'll have access to all new interview episodes. Each month, like I said, there are two to four interview episodes. You'll get access to those as well as a monthly bonus episode or two that is an interview or an exploration of themes through two or three texts. One example would be an episode that I did called Righteous and Justified Anger that was explored through the works by Langston Hughes and Ralph Ellison or The Power of Flashback was one episode which explored the endings of The Godfather Part 2 sleepers and that was then this is now with the all access patron membership you'll also receive a refrigerator magnet with the chills at will podcast logo and the monthly newsletter with reading recommendations literary event calendar and the chills at will podcast news you will get a shout out on a future episode too with the vip patron tier which is ten dollars a month you'll get access to all episodes a monthly newsletter with reading suggestions and a calendar of literary events and updates on the Chills at Will podcast, access to a monthly AMA, Ask Me Anything, and a t-shirt with the Chills at Will podcast logo. There are two to four monthly episodes and one or two bonus episodes, which are interviews or discussions of themes as seen through multiple texts. VIP patrons will also receive a special shout-out on a future episode. I encourage you to please join Patreon for the Chills at Will podcast. As I say all the time, this is truly a labor of love. This is truly a DIY operation. I started in April of 2020, and it has been an absolute pleasure. 99.999% fun. I've gone to interview people like Disha Filia, what? Matt Bell. Brandon Hobson, Luis Alberto Orrea, Jean Guerrero, Gustavo Arellano, Taylor Bias, Gabby Bates, Alice Elliott Dark, Nadia Owusu, and so, so, so many more. Did I say Jess Walter? Did I say Jeff Perlman? Ingrid Rojas Contreras, Jamil John Cochai, Morgan Talty, Sadie Shore Parks. 
Rachel Yoder, Vanessa Angelica Villarreal, Kirsten Chen, Sam Quinones, Ion Grillo, Raina Kelly, Zach Harper, Michael Torres, Tracy Cato Kirayama, S.J. Sindhu, Roberto Lovato, Todd Goldberg, Steph Cha, Noel Kassler, Reina Grande, James Tate Hill, Navdeep Dylan Singh, Nikisha Elise Williams, Mia St. John, Susan Muladi Daraj, Sarah Borjas, and the list goes on and on. Future episodes include conversations with Allegra Hyde, with Justin Tinsley, Javier Zamora, Jose Antonio Vargas, Yasmin Ramirez, Kai Harris, Laura Worrell, so, so, so many cool people. Patreon.com backslash Chills at Will podcast Peter Real. What are you waiting for? See you over there. Hello, I am Pete Real, a high school English and Spanish teacher, an avid reader, and an aspiring writer. Thank you for listening to the Chills at Will podcast, in which we explore the visceral beauty of literature and its connection to our culture, our history, and ourselves. Welcome to episode 157 of the Chills of Will podcast. What a pleasure today to be speaking with Alana Massad and a biography of Alana a bit. Alana Massad is a queer Israeli-American writer of fiction, nonfiction, and criticism. Her work has appeared in The New Yorker, New York Times, LA Times, Washington Post, NPR, Story Quarterly, Tin House's Open Bar, 7x7, Catapult, BuzzFeed, and many more. A graduate of Sarah Lawrence College, she has received her master's in English from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, where she is currently a doctoral student. She's the author of the novel, All My Mother's Lovers, which if you're watching at home, here it is. That will be the main thrust of our conversation. Welcome. Good morning, afternoon. Good morning. Yes. Good morning right. to you, you too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I am. Yes. Or good afternoon to you, I guess. Thank <laughs> you so much for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you. How is the the grind of being a doctoral student? Um, well, I'm now in my last year, uh, hopefully, hopefully. hopefully. Um, and, you know, the grind was very real at the beginning when I was still uh -huh. doing coursework, um, because I was doing coursework and freelancing. Um, but uh, now it's mostly just teaching and I'm working on my dissertation, which is the next novel also, okay. hopefully. <laughs> nice. Did, did you feel like you had to like force that like as in I need a dissertation or was it like it's the natural where it's it's a good fit I mean no no it's it's a good fit that's part of why I wanted to go to a creative writing PhD mm -hmm. because I knew that I would be able to do a creative dissertation um so I knew it would you know be a novel all right yeah awesome I love to go back a little bit and mm -hmm. you know I love to know about you know growing up growing up in Israel I mean I don't yeah. know when, when you moved how how old you were when you moved just about like 
your language or languages growing mm -hmm. up and kind of like your relationship with the written, written word? Yeah. Um, so I was raised bilingual, um, but I didn't start speaking Hebrew until we moved to Israel, which was not for any ideological reasons, just because my dad um, grew up there. Uh, his parents were immigrants after World War II, um, both were survivors. And so, uh, and he's an only child, he was an only child. And so uh, we moved there because his parents, his, his father was uh, sick with cancer and there was sort of no one else to mm. help out and they didn't have the money to hire people. Um, so we moved back um, and that was really when I started speaking Hebrew because apparently until then I would answer, I would understand Hebrew, but I would answer my dad in English. Mm. Um, but then when we moved, you know, I started going to nursery school in Israel. Uh, and so I had to, you know, I suddenly had to speak Hebrew because that's what all mm. the other kids were speaking. Um, so that was, uh, you know, when my real like bilingual myths, I guess, started wow. um, in terms of speaking, not just understanding. Um, and you know, it's, it's so interesting because I now having lived away so long, um, my Hebrew is very rusty, which makes mm. me very, very sad because yeah. I, I love it as a language. And in terms of the written word, you know, I was always a kid who loved being told stories. I loved being mm. read too. Uh, but I had a terrible time learning to read. Uh, mm. I, I remember we had like, you know, those, those homework booklets that you have when you're like in first grade and I remember hating doing my homework in first grade and like needing to fight with my parents about doing it mm -hmm. uh and my mom also then taught me to read in English uh and so that was also horrible because I just was so resistant mm. and I think it wasn't really until I was nine that I started read. I mean like I could read before that but I I didn't start reading books on my own until I was nine from then on, I never looked back and I became right? a huge reader as soon as I really started getting into it. Wow. That, yeah. I mean, the, the fact that, that it took a little while, but man, you picked up steam is obviously very sure encouraging for all of us, right? <laughs> <laughs> you made yeah, your life yeah. about that. You made your life about the written word in books, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, man. Well, thank you for that. Um, is there anything about, about Hebrew as a language that you feel like informs your work? Like is... You know, like some languages, they don't have a future tense or they're more lyrical. You know what I mean? Like, is there mm -hmm. something about that specific language that, that maybe someone could pick out in your English writing? You know, I I don't think so. Um, but I'm sure it's, I mean, I'm sure it, in some way it's had an effect, but not in a way that, like, I can parse. Mm. Um, I mean, I started, I need to thank Hebrew for being a writer because that's the language I started writing creatively in. Right. Um, yeah. Because... When I was about 16, um, my dad got sick with cancer. Uh, and that was also when I started, um, I learned about this, this poetry reading that, uh, and this, po it was like a website that also had a reading. So it was like an early kind of blog uh, mm -hmm. that, that was sort of like, you could post your own writing on. It was sort of like a deviant art, but for writing. Sure. And it was an Israeli website, although people sometimes wrote in other languages there. But uh, it was started, if, if I'm understanding correctly, and if I'm remembering correctly, it was started by Edgar Carrot, um, who's an Israeli flash fiction writer. Okay. One of like, it, it's kind of funny because there isn't really a flash fiction culture in a lot of places, but like he's super known as this short, short story writer. Mm -hmm. um, and so 
from that website, um, which was called like Bamachadasha, New Stage, uh, there was also a poetry reading that went with it. Uh, and I went to it with my first girlfriend and uh, it was, it was very revelatory mm-hmm. um, because, uh, you know, it was the first place that I'd ever seen like performance art yeah. also like this big, tall, bearded, long haired dude just walked up to the microphone when it was like his turn and took this deep breath and then just yelled, bitch, son of a bitch. And then got off. <laughs> it's like, Whoa. Okay. Interesting. Apparently that's art. Cool. Um, and so, yeah, so I started writing like bad poetry as many teenagers do. Um, mm-hmm. and then I started writing short, short stories in Hebrew first. Um, so, you know, from there I started transitioning to English uh, as a writing language, but because I knew I wanted to move here eventually. So, but I, I really don't know how to like track the relationship. That makes sense. That makes sense. Is your early writing out there somewhere in the ether or? Yeah. I mean, my, my, not my, I I actually don't know if the new stage, uh, website still exists. I should check. Uh, but my first blog, um, in English, uh, slightlyignorant.wordpress.com mm. uh, is full of extremely published, yeah. <laughs> uh, very early writing. Uh, if anybody, I, I wrote in it for a while every day, for a while less than every day. Uh, it's probably very embarrassing. I haven't gone back in a long time, but it's years. I mean, I, I wrote there for years. It was sort of my my way of practicing just being okay with being read, you know, and like sort of trying to fail in public Mm. and learn in public in some way, because then, and also, you know, early days of blogging, there was a lot of community. Right. So it, I was reading other people, they were reading me, you know, like it felt like I was part of a bunch of other writers who were sort of like scrambling to figure out what, what our writing was going to be like. Remember when the internet was like a good thing? (laughs) Remember that? Yeah, I actually do remember that. So much potential and just, just worlds yeah. together and people together and community and yeah i know i know it's sort of depressing oh it also right. was so much more open right like now mm. it's we we go to apps we go to like websites yes. that are also yes. apps on our phones you yeah. know it's like this streamlined thing now yeah right it's like i don't know if i've ever used the word out loud but siloed right it's like this yeah. type of thing yeah. it's totally siloed yeah I think you were saying, isn't, isn't that part of one of your, one or both of your, or more of your social media handles, but the slightly ignorant part? Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Yeah. It's uh so that's very old. It's from my podcasting days. <laughs> All right. I'm podcasting. It's from my blogging days. Excuse me. Blogging days. <laughs> so who were, who were, who were some of those writers who really, you know, turned you on to, to fiction, to, to novels um, growing up that, you know, just made you. That kind of, that that double that double feeling of like wow this is unbelievable I can never do that and also I want to do this yeah so I mean I the first book that I read on my own was Harry Potter which I have very complicated feelings about sure. now um, sure. but you know it meant a whole lot to me growing up so I can't like erase that feeling of what it meant to me at the time um, but then I really just got into fantasy so like I read everything Tamara Pierce has ever written. Um, uh, I'm still waiting for her to publish that new mirror book. Mm. Um, 
it's funny she hasn't gotten the hate that George R. R. Martin has gotten, which I'm <laughs> grateful for because she yeah. doesn't deserve it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> does, does he? Or you're saying no one? No, 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 no. Nobody deserves okay, it. Okay, I'm just okay, saying, okay. you know, he's he's fine. You know, like sure. he's making plenty of money from the yeah, shows. Yeah, I'm yeah. sure. Um, and uh, I got into way too young. I got into this fantasy series um, that is also very racy. Uh, called uh Kushiel's uh, I think it's the, I think the title of the whole thing is like Kushiel's Legacy but the first one is Kushiel's Dart um and you know I read a lot of high fantasy novels as I was uh in in my teens mm-hmm. and a lot of YA you know Sarah Dessen I read a bunch of oh, yeah. British YA because mm-hmm. in Israel the the bookstores didn't have if they had an American section, uh, I mean, if they had an English section, it was classics. Oh, okay. Uh, it was like, you know, one or two shelves um, of classics, obviously, um, just because, you know, those are everywhere. Um, and then if they had any YA, it was British because there was more of a relationship at the time with... What is with, British YA like? Uh, <laughs> a, a lot, yes, but also a lot more risque than the oh, American, okay. like... Huh you know, like 13 year olds dating 18 year olds and that being somehow fine. I didn't um, think that would be that way. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, it, at least at the time. I mean, I'm sure it's changed, but it was a lot, a lot racier. There was a lot of snogging and oh. uh, second base for like 13 and 14 year olds, which in uh, American YA certainly was not a thing. No. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, so those at the beginning, you know, and that that was sort of what inspired me to write my very first novel, which was a 200,000 word high fantasy novel, Whoa. <laughs> which was not good. Um, but probably it's not. I looked at the first page a while ago and it's not as bad as I expected it to be. Yeah. Um, but then when I was in college, I started reading the classics um, because which I never really read because mm. we, you know, the things I learned in school were not. The American classics, except for Catcher in the Rye, which oh, okay. we had to read in Hebrew. Oh. Um, and when I was in college, I had to take a year off because I was uh, very sick with uh, anorexia. And during that year, I was super miserable. Um, but I was also the way that I sort of dealt with that um, was by reading a ton. Um, mm. And I read 144 books that year. I'm sorry. 144 books that year (laughs) i know i've never read that much since um and a bunch of them were classics uh that i had not read so i was trying to sort of like complete my education uh, or something uh Uh, and it was the first time i'd read like virginia wolf and you know like all of these other people um and it was amazing and i just got very excited about realist fiction as well as about fantasy so it was my first time really like getting super into I mean, both classics and, like, that was, I think, the first time that I read, like, The Handmaid's Tale and, like, all of these sort of books that were a lot more overtly political. And, right. yeah. So that was wow. that was sort of where I transitioned to realist fiction. Yeah. 144 books is no, is no joke. I think a lot of them were, man. yeah, but I think a lot of them were me rereading uh, Tamara Pierce books also oh, okay. as, like, a comfort in between the serious books. So the comfort. Yeah. Uh, I wonder if there was a faithful translation of phony into Hebrew, you know, from uh, Catching the Rye. Oh, you know, gosh. 
I don't remember what the translation was. I'm gonna I'm gonna look that up later because you know, I'm wondering what was what it was. That commonly used word in the book for sure. Oh and yeah, everyone was a phony. Everyone was a phony. Holding everybody was. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you say classics, like, are you talking American classics? American and British classic, yeah. Anglo classics. Sure. Yeah, yeah, mostly sure. Anglo classics. Okay. Did you feel like those were representative of your life experience? I mean, I guess that's hard to say when there's so many different ones. Right. Kind of like, this is what I'm supposed to read. Or was it like that you were, you talk about realist fiction. Like, yeah. Is that where you really began to like see yourself? No, I don't think so. I think it was just when I began to sort of see how big realist fiction could be. Like how, you know, because fantasy is so imaginative, right? Um, And I think that I hadn't quite understood or or seen yet the ways that like realist fiction um could also be super expansive and also like explore a ton of different kinds of life experiences Mm -hmm. and also be really magical um and you know also i i started seeing like other forms you know like the way virginia wolf writes is like so different than the way any kind of commercial fiction as we might call it um was written, which is largely what I had read before, you know? And so just getting to see these kind of different forms and, and seeing the way that like a Victorian writer wrote and how, how Jane Austen wrote is so different from realist fiction today. Sure. Right. Um, so it just, it showed me how many options there were, I think. There, there was a Jane Austen shout out, wasn't there in your book? Oh, probably. Yes. I so. Somewhere. I think, so. I think it, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, the, I, I think it took me about, uh, I don't know, a couple of days for me to figure out that who's afraid of Virginia Woolf, the play was not yeah. written by Virginia Woolf. Yeah. At some point I didn't, I definitely didn't know that either. And I, I also learned that I've never seen that or read it, which I feel like I should. I, I remember being so taken by it. It was, it was so the, I mean, we read it in high school and it was maybe a little above our heads, like, you know, subject matter wise and whatever, but it was like. It was about this couple and it was like a really just the tension that the way that the tension is built is so good. They playing like sexual games kind of with each other, with their ah. partners and just kind of like there's so much about jealousy. And mm. yeah, I, that'd be a good one to, to, to reread for sure. Yeah. Or read for the first time in my or case. Read for the first time. There you yeah. go. As you got into college and, and, and beyond, like, I mean, were you like a major in creative writing? Did you know when did you kind of know like? I'm really, I'm good at this. People give me this feedback. I can do this for a living. Well, I mean, I don't think I knew I was going to be able to do it for a living, but uh, my first creative writing teacher in college, Brian Morton, um, who I'm still friends with. I mean, you know, I transitioned from being his student to being his friend after graduating, you know, Um, uh, he's the one who really like made me believe that I, I had something, you know, mm-hmm. that I could do this because um, I was writing this novel in his class. Uh, and the way Sarah Lawrence works is is there's a lot of contact with the teachers. Like you have a, a conference with them. So like a meeting with them basically every two weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of one-on-one time because it's a very small school. Right. Um, and he's the one who really, you know, made me feel like, you know, I'm, I'm good at this. I can do this. Uh, and then... 
when I was, I, I went to Oxford, uh, there's a study abroad program at Sarah Lawrence. Right. Um, and so I went to Oxford for that study abroad program, which was part of why I chose the school. Cause I was like, Ooh, mm. Oxford, that would be cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and while I was there, I took uh, a year long tutorial with, um, a poet, Kieran Wynn, and he, um, this is actually coming out in a piece in a, a list uh, with the Atlantic on Sunday. Uh-huh. Um, uh, I, I tell this little story there, which is that uh, I told him that I had never read Ulysses mm-hmm. and that I was never going to yeah. because it was too big and too scary and I didn't care. <laughs> and he was like, okay, start reading Ulysses. And uh, come back next week with, you know, something written that's inspired by that, which like what a tall order, you know. Uh, And that year I also read a ton because we had to write like for my literature tutorial, we had to write or I had to write a paper about a novel every single week, Mm. like, you know, a seven to 12 page paper. Mm. And I had to read the novel and then read criticism of the novel and you know figure out like at sarah lawrence they they didn't want you to use sources at first they wanted you to just figure out what do you think Uh and in oxford they didn't care what you think they wanted (laughs) to know how you used other people's thoughts to make some kind of point yeah Uh and so i think that's probably part of what got me interested in criticism um and uh and so yes so so that year was when i started writing sort of experimentally for the first time because of ulysses and it was also the year that i first uh like had any sort of success with my writing by which i mean i won a contest Hmm. um i worked for the oxford student for that entire year which is the the like one of the two big student newspapers Hmm. um and so i was also like in a a semi newsroom uh, and I started, I, I edited the arts and literature section, um, and I started a little fiction corner there. Oh, cool. uh, I had my first two reviews accepted, not paid or anything. And so it was the, that was, I think, really the beginning of me being like, oh, there are ways that I can do this that aren't just writing fiction. Like, I can mm-hmm. do all of this other stuff as well. Mm-hmm. Um But I didn't really think that I was, you know, that it was going to happen for me. And so I was in my last year in college, I like got an an internship at a bookish startup. Um, And my my goal was like to work in publishing, because if I work in publishing, then I'll learn everything I need to learn. Mm -hmm. And if I don't get published ever, well, at least I'll work with books all the time. There you go. Good. So that was sort of my plan. Ah. Well, yeah, so that's interesting uh, that you had that really those really polar opposites with criticism, right? At, mm-hmm. at Oxford and then at Sarah Lawrence. I wonder, like you know, to this day, like is it hard? I think of like a coach and like a sport, you know, and mm-hmm. you know, you could watch video a million times, like trying to look at tendencies and you know, run this play and this and that. And so you're watching a game, maybe it's hard to like just watch it for fun. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you find that with with reading, where like you have trouble like reading for pleasure? You know, I feel so incredibly lucky uh, because I, in fact, no, uh, I, I, you know, I always have a book going or almost always have a book going that's just for fun. Mm. Um, I read before bed always like I can't Mm. go to sleep without reading first. Mm. Um, And I, I feel really lucky that 
I have not come to hate reading quite the opposite. I feel like, you know, I mean, sometimes, you know, I'll read a book for a review and it's difficult or I don't love it Mm -hmm. or I don't figure out if I I can't figure out if I like it or not. And then it feels more like work. Mm. And I mean, it feels like work because I'm thinking about it like work, Mm. but that A, doesn't mean that I'm not enjoying it. Um, And B, I still, you know, I still read for pleasure, just for sheer pleasure. Um, and, and it's like, I'll finish my work for the day and then I'll go read <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. before bed. So uh, it, I really do feel very, very lucky that I, that it is still my favorite thing in the world to do. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. You know, the idea of like, you know, reading with a critical eye and you said, you know, sometimes you don't love it. Are you like, how are you trained, you know, just like in the industry or just yourself personally? Like, what if it's a book that you just, you're just like, this is book is terrible. Like this book is just, is just crap. Like how does that mean no review or that means you kind of dance around it or? Well, so it, it really depends because I, my approach to criticism um, is that I'm not, I'm not interested in whether I like the book or not. Mm -hmm. Like that to me, like, I mean, that might come into the review yeah. and it, it does often, especially if I really love the book, but what I'm really trying to figure out is whether the book is succeeding on the terms that it has set for itself. Mm. Like, is it doing what it has set out to do? Um, and there have been books that I have known were not for me. Like I'm not the ideal reader for them because it's not my style or I don't, you know, I don't love this plot device. Um, but I've known that it's a good book because it's succeeding on its own terms. It's just not a book for me. Yeah. So, so in that way, I still have, that's not difficult for me to write about because then I'm thinking about it just very analytically. Right. Mm. The only books that I've really not liked and reviewed poorly are books that don't feel like they're succeeding on their terms. Um, So, or if they're like just, horrendously uh problematic in a way that like ruins anything that's working about the book so like there was a mystery that i was assigned to read um and it i knew i could see the twist coming from a mile away it was both insulting to trans people and insulting to uh to afghan people um and it was just it was bad in all sorts of ways and it was trying to sort of make a point about difference and how, but it was doing this, like there's always a few bad apples thing as opposed to like looking at anything more, more deeply. And that was maybe one of the only hatchet reviews that I've ever written really. Um, Because I just, I don't find it interesting. I don't find that, that uh, I, I don't find I, I find it more of a challenge to figure out like what the book is doing well. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. I mean, you, you're, you're making the delineation between like problematic, racist, homophobic versus just like, Oh, it didn't, wasn't my thing or. Right. But it's, yeah. I used to use the, and it's, it's a pretty dated reference, maybe even then, but I used to use the, the analogy of like the Dave Matthews band, mm. not my thing. Right. Not a, not a fan, but hey, good. Like they're good. You know, they do yeah. a violin thing and they're talented. Just not my thing. Right. Totally. Totally. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think any of our students would get that reference, but anyways. <laughs> so, I don't know. It depends, maybe. you know. So, well, I mean, there's always some of those students who are into. There is. You the know. Old souls. And yeah. Or maybe dad or mom showed it to them or older cool uncle or something like that. Mm-hmm. 
I wonder what writer, which writers or, or writing is really, you know, impressing you or inspiring you these days. Uh, I'm sure, again, those, that list is such a long one. Yeah, and it's one of those things where it's like, oh, I don't know. Uh, well, recently, though, um, uh, let's see. Uh, I need to see if that the book, book is still there. Um, yeah, these are books that are coming out uh, later. Well, one of the books that I read recently that I just am obsessed with is uh, Before All the World by uh, Moriel Rothman Zechler. Uh, okay. Yes, that's the, the order. Um, and it's it's experimental it it uses it's it's sort of it's very meta in that it's like the the form of it is it's a translation and fictional translation of a fictional yiddish narrative and the way that the translation works is that it's it's trying to uh like copy yiddish um or it's trying to evoke and keep yiddish cadence and so there's all of these combination words because Yiddish, Yiddish has a lot of like combination words, sort of uh, like in German. Right. Um, and there's just something it's it's so delicious and it's so beautiful mm. and it's so painful. Um, but the painful is sort of being reflected in the writing. It's not like gratuitous. It's not trauma porn. You know, it's mm. just it's this sort of soul pain. Um, wow. And it's it's just gorgeous, but it's also like ho- hopeful as well in these mm. in these particular ways where it's sort of like finding finding connection amid darkness. So not like a happy ending or anything, you know. But it's like mm. just finding the, those those connections that that keep us all alive and that keep us all wow. like going. Yeah. So I, I am still thinking about that book uh, and wanting to sort of do something like that possible german or yiddish word might be smorgasbord you know i have no idea actually where that originates like a but... Compound, but it sounds like that that book is that right you're talking about it's hopeful yes. but it's also painful and i hope someone will, will say about my writing that it's delicious yes oh right? so yes yes right? yes because there's something about language you know um mm. that that uh when it when it's working in a particular way it's like you can feel it you can yeah. feel it in your body you know yeah. i um i you know, I have a great depth to I'm a writer, but I heard your interview with I'm a writer, but yeah, for, for information on you and just in general, it's a great podcast. Check it, it out if you're listening. Um, but you were talking about like some of the books that um, that were out on submission, right? And you, you know, you like certain things about them, but they mm-hmm. didn't come together for the agent or whatever. Right. Like, I guess what you were just saying remind me of like, do you, what's, what's the expression? Like you must kill all your darlings. Like, is that tough for you? Like, like, hey, this is like on a sentence structure, on a sentence basis. Like, this is awesome and it stands alone, but it doesn't fit with the rest. Like, is that like extra tough for you? I mean, you know, I don't know because I don't super believe in that maxim okay. of kill your darlings. You know, I mean, I think yeah. I think Reese Kwan, R.O. Kwan, uh, she she talks about something where she's like, no, keep your darlings. Like, your darlings are what you're supposed to keep. Like, <laughs> what is with this weird writing advice? Um, and I think, you know, I think that there's always going to be stuff that doesn't fit, right? Like there, there are going to be things that feel like I really love this, but it doesn't fit with the greater whole, mm-hmm. but then you don't have to kill it. You just put it away and there maybe you, you use it later. Yeah. You know? yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, okay. And also for me, editing is the, the best part of writing, honestly. Like I love oh. having written. So, and then being able to play with what I've got there. Yeah. Um, so I think, it's not, it's not super difficult. It's more just fun, that mm. part of it. 
All my mother's lovers came out during COVID. Early, yes. early days, right? very early days of COVID. Oh, um, I know you said it was it was you know fairly quick as books go, very quick as books go. The publishing, yeah. the writing of it, the editing. What were some of the seeds for the book? I wonder. Uh, well, it was really like a sentence. You know, it was like this sentence that was rolling around my head one night. Um, and usually, you know, you forget the sentences that are rolling around your head For at night, real. especially if you're the kind of person like me who does not get up and write them down because <laughs> I'm lazy and I'm in bed and I just don't fucking feel like it. Um, but this one didn't. It, it, I woke up and was still thinking about it. And that was very close to what the first sentence of the book still is. Um, and I sort of started doing a lot of journaling and figuring out, like, who are these people that, you know, because there's four characters in that first. Yeah, uh, yeah. In that first sentence, so who are they? Well, the first, the first line, first lines are going to go. I mean, go down in history with like you know Marquez and. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. I would love that! My yeah. God. <laughs> yeah, pun. Yeah, pun. Pun not intended. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know if you want to read it or. Uh, but, oh or gosh. Tell us, give us a summary of it, or. But, uh, it, but it's a definitely a memorable line. I think it's Maggie is in the midst of a second lazy orgasm when her brother calls to tell her their mother has died that's that's right that's exactly right oh yay that's, look at I me mean, that's, that's, that's marquez ish i mean that that that's going to pull the reader in right away right Man. or push them away i mean here's or, the thing right it's it's I, a first line that certainly my my editor actually asked me like do you want to maybe add a prologue like a one-page uh, prologue just so, so it's not the, the beginning. beginning yeah yeah and i was like you know no because the thing is if if it's not right for someone, they'll know immediately. If that is yeah. disturbing enough for them that they want to turn away, okay. Otherwise, what? They'll read the prologue, they'll like it, and then the next page they'll be like, hey, no, and throw right. it across the room. Right. You know, I'd rather them know what they're getting into from the beginning. Yeah. So you kind of, I'm sure you kind of pat yourself on the back for that first line. That's, that's pretty right. <laughs> I mean, I still like it, yeah. <laughs> I'm a huge fan of epigraphs, and you have three. Yes. Right? What you do to your children matters, and they might never forget. From Toni Morrison, God help the child. From Meg Wolitzer, the inter the interestings. Mm -hmm. The truth is, the world will probably whittle your daughter down, but a mother never should. And Celeste Ng from Little Fires Everywhere. I'll tell you a secret: a lot of times, parents are not the best at seeing their children clearly. Amen. Hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, so a lot of the, the book, of course, is about the mother daughter relationship. And we do get to know Iris through flashbacks. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, she does, as we learned in the first page, she does learn she does die in a, in a car crash. Mm -hmm. um, and then it's, kind of, it, it's epistolary in that, you know, letters are a huge plot device mm -hmm. that she's left, you know, these five letters. But we don't we don't get to read all of them. Mm -hmm. um, but such an interesting and clever way to to go about things. I wonder, was the epigraph something put on at the put in at the end, or was that like something that kind of guided your writing? You know, the book I'm writing right now, I've known what the epigraph was going to be from the very like inception of uh -huh. it. Um, but uh, no, with this one, it was very much an at the end sort of. Uh, here's a way to give some of the themes of the book right from the sure. beginning, right? Yeah. And um, you, you said on the on uh, I'm a writer, but that you really started with the end in mind. All, I mean, you said that the first yeah. line got you going, but you had the the end line, that conversation between the father and mm -hmm. so Peter and Maggie, the main character. And we're definitely not going to ruin that one, spoil that one, because <laughs> everyone needs to get the book. 
Um, but it's it's a very emotional and, and beautiful and all of the above. Um, so yeah, like I said, back and forth a bit, um, mostly within the 2014 to 17 ish, but also going way back. Yeah, yeah, irises go way back. Right, right. So how are you able to keep a sense? I mean, I don't know if continuity is even the word, but like continuity, yeah, with the characters and like you know that something she would have done in '85 is. Similar to what she did in 2017, or you could see why in 2017 she would act differently. You know what I mean? Right, right, right. The continuity of it. Yeah, I think that while I was doing the background writing and just like this journaling of figuring out who the characters were, um, I sort of started to figure out like who Iris was Mm -hmm. um, and figuring out like why she is the way she is, right? Um, In some ways, in other ways, you know, it's not like I there's so much that would have happened to her in her life that right. is not depicted. Right. Um, but I want, I mean, part of the sort of the structure of the book sort of required this, right. Because I wanted to have this forward momentum um, for Maggie and then a very literal backward momentum with the, with Iris's story. Mm-hmm. Uh I think there was some like, you know, timeline stuff where I was trying to figure out, you know, and doing research on like, when would this have made sense mm-hmm. when, you know, for Iris, like, and, and doing a lot of very nerdy research about, you know, like, what would food at a Chinese restaurant cost in mm. 1985 or whatever, yeah, 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 yeah. you know? Um, so, yeah, I mean, but I don't, I don't think it was, it was more difficult to sort of figure out where to put things Mm -hmm. Uh, like where to do those section breaks. Um, And I shifted them around a bit, but usually it was pretty clear to me because it was sort of like when Maggie meets one of the men. Right. That's when we get Iris's perspective. We get to know them in the present tense. And then what was it like? What was their relationship like? Yeah, exactly. You you just talked about like, and it's not exactly the same thing. Well, so like, you know, after the death, you know, Maggie and she goes on, on this road trip and we'll talk about Mm -hmm. that in a minute, but like, you know, things like she'll stop and she checks her Facebook, she checks her social media. Mm-hmm. And at first she's hesitant to put anything up about her mother's death, but and her brother does. Mm-hmm. But just the idea of like, one, like, why isn't the world stopped? I think we all know this when we've lost a loved one. Why isn't the world stopping? Right. Don't they know? Right. Right. Why is the sun still shining? Why do people still, you know, the line from the book is like, the world is a tilt and she can't believe it. But I guess like, the, and you talk about the connection between like sex and death. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And even like, um, just like, you know, do you do a selfie? Right. Your mom's just died. Like, you know, <laughs> is is there a right way to yeah. smile? Do you smile because you loved your mom? Mm-hmm. Do you do you cry in the you know what I mean? Like in, in yeah. performance and all that. So I wonder kind of what you mean by like the connection between sex and death and how that manifests in the book. Yeah. Well, I mean, in terms of social media, I think it's just that like we, you know it's part of dealing with death now, you know, like if if you are a person who is on social media, yeah, I mean, but also like it's, it's useful in a way, right. Because you don't have to make individual calls to everybody. Um, Not everybody is necessarily going to be able to afford like an obituary in the paper. So Mm. you can freely tell people here's when the funeral is, but it's also weird in the ways that you're saying, right. Mm. Like the performativity of it, how do you decide to portray yourself? Um, do you even think about it in the moment or do you not think about it? Mm-hmm. How self-conscious are you whenever you're approaching social media mm-hmm. in terms of sex and death? I mean, I feel like they're, you know, they're, they're two sort of, they're, they're two sides of the same coin in a mm-hmm. sense in that like 
the sex drive, right? Is, I mean, in psychology, that's like the life drive, right? And the death drive is sort of the entropy destruction drive. Mm. And I feel like they're always connected, not just because of like, you know, sex is what creates life, but also just the idea that like, you know, living, not that sex is at all required for living well, obviously, but I, I just mean in terms of like heightened, some kind of heightened emotion, right? Like an mm -hmm. intensity of emotion and an intensity of physical feeling. And whether that's literally in sex or just that intensity through other things, you know, it that is so, sort of how you know, we know we're most alive, right? Like, that's how we've always, I feel like we've, we've thought about it as like the most alive, like culturally, we think of it as yeah, like the yeah, most yeah. alive space. Um, and death is inevitable, right? Like, uh, and, and I also think that when, I mean, there's a reason why, you know, I think, what is it? The French term for an orgasm is a little death, le petit, right? Le petit mort or something like that. Right. Yeah, exactly. Petit, yeah. Uh, and so I think that we've long connected these things just mm -hmm. as human beings, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and, and so I just find it sort of fascinating to think about how those things are connected just because of how they're about like living as alive as your body can be sure. and disappearing. Yeah. No, and it makes a lot of sense. And, you know, with, in the book with, um, with like Harold, who's a much older man in mm -hmm. 2017, almost, almost like you can't imagine him having sex mm -hmm. like Maggie can't. And, but yeah, like you talk about like the, this idea of being the most alive and then I, you know, I'm not saying anything original here, but you know, this idea of like, if a woman is, you know, 45 or 50 or 55, you know, in, in Hollywood, you know, she's not seen as a sex symbol. Oh or, yeah. Right. No, she's you know, a grandmother. If, the minute right. she turns 50. <laughs> right. She gets the different roles. Right. Yeah. You know, and then all those things about like being the most alive and therefore youth is, is representative as the most alive and I thought it to be sexual and playful. Right. Peter is the father. Mm -hmm. And upon his wife's death, I mean, he, he's frozen. Yeah. I mean, he can't, his voice doesn't go above a, a peep. He, I mean, he's almost literally frozen. He doesn't know what to do. He doesn't want to seem to want to do anything. Nothing. Yeah. You know, he's just, he's emotionless, even though we know yeah. he's so emotional. Yeah. Did I make a huge discovery that Peter like my name, great name. Yes. Means rock, and he's the rock for the family. Or am I seeing too much into it? You know, I don't think that was on purpose, but it <laughs> makes it. total sense because he Dang is it. the rock for the family. Dang it. He really is. So it was, I, really I mean, is. it might have been unconscious okay. on my part, you know? Okay. All right. Yeah. All right. Um, you know, but he is, he's the one who cooked and cleaned, you know, growing mm -hmm. up. He's the one who, quote, made the house a home. Mm -hmm. He Maggie describes him as paternal and maternal mm -hmm. because Iris was always out. She's, like well, like a corporate planner? event planner, yeah, corporate, corporate event, event planner, planner, right? Yeah, so she's always out. They live in Oxnard, which is kind of close to LA, and she's mm -hmm. in Vegas. She's in LA. She's all over. Mm -hmm. And he's always the one, you know, in the stereotypical maternal role, mm -hmm. um, the one who stays home. She's the one, you know, ostensibly who's um, out there for her career. Right. She's always so busy, right? Mm -hmm. She's also described as, and I know you've written a lot about this on your own. She's also like big into like true crime and detective. Yeah. Right. She loved that Jeffrey Dahmer. She was she was interested in the Jeffrey Dahmer verdicts back in the day. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And because she's totally aware of she feels like she can become more aware of evil in the world. She's like more in control. Mm -hmm. I wonder, like, and it's not really even referenced much at all in the book. Like, is there a ancestral trauma like in, from like her parents being survivors of the camp? Yes. Like, is that 
Yes, and I think that's, yes, yes. And I mean, I think that that's definitely why she is drawn to mysteries and to knowing, like, just feeling like she needs to be in control and prepared, you know. I mean, and there are other things in the book, too, that sort of signal to her need for control, right? Right. Um, And for compartmentalization on her, everything that needs to be, like, on her terms, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I think that that's definitely ancestral trauma like intergenerational trauma for sure generational is the word yeah yeah. and then of course you know you know so shlomo was her first husband Mm -hmm. was a rabbi and he was he was an abuser Mm -hmm. and so obviously like you said i mean there are reasons why she would be so protective and want to make sure she's in control because she wasn't right um in in that relationship Mm -hmm. and of course i mean peter's like the the greatest rebound fallback you know yes (laughs) friendly hugging you know they met at they met at the Chinese restaurant on Christmas Eve or yep. Christmas, right? And mm-hmm. he was just like a puppy dog, and you know they hit it off for sure. Mm-hmm. Maggie, who is proudly out, who is in mm-hmm. a relationship, who is you know an activist. Maybe she'd like to get become more of an activist, but she mm-hmm. is. You know, she lives away from home. She's like in the St. Louis area, mm-hmm. so she gets the the inheritance, right, or like the envelopes, if you will. And she's really upset because she gets what the necklace. Yeah. And is sorry, is it Ariel or Ariel? Ariel. So Ariel gets like the, the rings. Yeah. What was it though so upsetting to her about not getting the rings? I think she she saw it as a as a um a rejection from mm-hmm. her mom, right? Like the idea that, well, you're not gonna marry. It won't matter for you, right? Because or it won't mean as much to you. So that's mm-hmm. how she reads it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um and that's hurtful. She also doesn't know that like the Amber is, you know, significant in a different way, but mm-hmm. you know, right. well, yeah. So that, I mean, so that sets her, you know, of course, all these emotions, she's in shock. She's have so much grief and she's really upset by that. Um, mm-hmm. She feels like you said, rejected. And so with that, there are the, what the five letters that are to be delivered mm-hmm. and the idea of Shiva, right? How is Shiva like weeks or is it like a five, five days? It's one week. It's one yeah. week, right? Like yeah. sitting in Shiva and like the, mm-hmm. the morning and she just does not want to be around. Right. Ariel's annoying or she's guilty or all, you know, she feels guilty because maybe he's feeling in a different way. I don't know. Right. But and yeah. then her, her dad, unfortunately, is so passive. Yeah. She's like, peace. I'm getting on the road. Yep. Yep. Right. And like I said, it's such a cool plot device where she's able to get to know her mom so much, you know, through the through dropping off these letters. As she starts to meet these men and realize that they were like the title, her mother's lovers. Mm-hmm. She's just, you know, asking them and asking her, like, how could her mom have done this? Right. Does she, how much of it is her feeling like hurt for herself, hurt for her dad? Like, what is she, what is she so upset about? I mean, it seems I think obvious. all of those things, right? Yeah. I mean, I think she's hurt that the idea that like she thought her mom was always working and mm-hmm. that's why she wasn't at home, but she was also having this like adventurous, sexy life. Um, she thinks she's hurt, you know, because how dare she do this to my dad, who's the best dad in the world. Hmm. Right. Um, I think there's also just this kind of, I think there's, I think she's probably a little, um, indignant, right? Like, like I'm the youth, I'm the person who's supposed to be going out and having a bunch of sex. Like, how dare you? (laughs) This is not what parents are supposed to do. Uh Uh-huh. So I think there's, and also I think just, again, like this, this idea that she didn't know, right. The idea that she never, that she's not going to get to ask her mom about this ever, that her mom cannot give her answers. 
Um, and I think that that's probably one of the biggest parts because like anytime she yells or gets annoyed at one of the men or one of the people around one of the men, she's, I mean, in my imagination anyway, it's like she really wants to be yelling at her mom, but her mom isn't around for her to yell at. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Um, and that was one of the things that I really wanted to explore is anger because I don't think anger tends to get as much time as sadness as a grief response in, in literature and movies, you know, just we, we talk about grief often as like a sadness or a depression. And I feel like it's so much more complicated than that because, you know, and grief also can change over time, right? Like you might feel sad at the beginning and then five years later, you'll suddenly be like, wait, he did this thing. She did that thing. How dare, why, why was I okay with it? You know, like all of this stuff. Uh, And I feel like anger is just a, a response that we don't, we don't like to look at very much, uh, especially from women, especially in this country. Yeah, you you do you do a great job with with the grief and like you said, the anger is, is such a part of it, and it's it's a justified anger. It's a, it's an anger at the universe, right? For like, yeah. why didn't we have more time? Mm-hmm. Um, because you know it wasn't all hate between the two. I mean, there no. was a lot of love and beautiful times for sure, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, but I think that sort of Maggie's pulled away over time, right? Because she's prickly. She's a prickly yeah. person. Yeah. But yeah, like you said, I mean, just like the like the 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 road trip and mm-hmm. the way that it, it it plays out in that that week or so after her death is such a great way to show the different stages. Mm-hmm. And again, who knows what it's gonna be like in four years and six years and ten years. Or two like, weeks. Or two weeks. <laughs> yeah. Right. But it is such a built in um way, you know, through going to different places, right? The whole I think of like Ulysses, right? Mm-hmm. This idea of pe- men going, in that case, men going to different islands and being different people and, mm-hmm. you know, how travel changes us. She goes to Vegas. She goes to Sacktown, where I'm, where I'm from. Where oh, I'm sweet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, like that. yeah. I was hoping you would do more like description of like, you know, the buildings. Uh, I, I want to know like Sorry. what suburb. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I did. I will say at some point I had an address, like okay. I knew where that house was. Yeah. Uh, but, but. I, I mean, it might be somewhere in my notes still because I was, I was uh, doing a lot of Google Mapsing uh, <laughs> and Google Street Viewing while I was writing because I yes. was living in Nebraska and not in California right, at all. Right, right, right. <laughs> but yeah, so you know, so through through her journey, we get to know a lot about her her past with her mom mm-hmm. and how how she is. I'm talking about Maggie. How why she is the way she is, and she's mm-hmm. known to be like dependable mm-hmm. in many ways among her friends, like among like the younger people, you know, like she, she has a nine to five. Yep. She has a steady paycheck. You know, she works mm-hmm. for insurance. Right. Mm-hmm. And we get to know, we can see why she has commitment issues. Mm-hmm. Um, she's with a, you know, everything. Lucia mm-hmm. seems to be a beautiful girlfriend for her. seems, you know, mm-hmm. she's a rock. She's helpful. She's, she's creative. She's loving, but you know, as the texts go on, as the days go on, how come she hasn't responded? You know, we can all mm-hmm. relate to that, right? Mm-hmm. How come mm-hmm. she didn't respond right away? Right. Why did? She, why was that word in there? Right. You know, why was it but and not and? Right. You know, those type of things, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> so some of the men are older. Yes. Some of the men are, they're all seemingly decent men. Yeah. Right? I think so. Right. They, um, you know, so there's like, there's Liam, for example, who is a trans man. Yes. Right. And so those are the type of things that she finds out talking about Maggie. And it's like, mm-hmm. but 
why was she so distant with me? Why did she, why would she not mention that I'm in a relationship or look the other way or not, you know, mm-hmm. meet it head on. Mm-hmm. And she's just able to see like her mom in that way, even that she, her mom was in a relationship with like a, with an addict. Yeah. Way back in the day. Right. Mm-hmm. Who unfortunately had passed away. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder about the commitment issues, how much you kind of tried to play that up with Maggie. I think a lot. Um, and I think, you know, uh, people tend to ask me, like, how much of Maggie is me? Mm-hmm. And I always say very little because Maggie has way more game than me. Ah. Maggie is way more confident than <laughs> I am. She's way more comfortable at being like with being, uh, you know, kind of a dick to people um, <laughs> when she needs to be. Uh, yeah. And I tend to think that I'm more like Iris in some ways, mm-hmm. uh, actually, but but with Maggie, I think the the this sort of conceptual commitment issue, I think, was drawn from a certain part of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think that it was, I think it was sort of self-sabotage on her part, mm-hmm. um, a lot of it. You know, I feel like really, it's not so much that she has commitment issues. It's mm-hmm. more that, you know, she doesn't, if she felt like she wasn't in a good fit with someone, she didn't know how to end it. So she would cheat, yeah. you know, when she was younger. Right. Um, and, and I think that because of that, she sees that as like commitment issues when I think it's really more like, I don't know how to get out of things issues. <laughs> yeah. What if, what if she would have cheated with Nellie? Who's this, this woman she meets on the road would, would this have been a whole different book or is that just, I think so. We'll probably. We'll I mean, know. we'll never know. We'll yeah. never know. Yeah. You're saying you think like, Again, you know, commitment issue is kind of like an umbrella term. I, you know, yeah. it's kind of it's kind of vague and kind of you know generic. But like, so do you feel like it's more like when I think of commitment issues, sometimes I think of like, well, the way that she talks about it, wondering like, hey, do you still want to stay with me, Lucia? Like, think yeah. of that more of like a self confidence, self esteem issue. Yeah, yeah. But I don't necessarily think of her as someone lacking it. Right. I think that she lacks it in this relationship because it's so good, and she's like, yeah. how? Oh, okay. And also, I think because like again her mom just died. They haven't been together that long. Mm-hmm. And like, wouldn't a person run when right. there's a big thing? Cause people do that, you know, especially with death, people disappear. Yeah. People feel like they can't handle it yeah. right now, especially again, in a newish relationship, right? Like, yeah. do you want to deal with someone who's grieving? Mm-hmm. Do you feel like you can be there for them? Like yeah. if you haven't been with them all that long. So it was, I think more from that, that's what she felt. I think also it was projection, right? Because mm. I think she thinks she would have run, right? If the situation was reversed, right? And almost like couldn't couldn't blame a person, right? For doing right. that, right? Yeah, like she would say that. I forget exactly who, but there were at least one or two in the book where, like you talk about, I think you know someone so and so got like Alzheimer's and the wife left, mm-hmm. or so and so got like a diagnosis and left, and and yeah, I mean, you again with grief, like I mean, I I've seen that just the idea of. People, we don't know how to talk about death. And or again, sickness, not, yeah. Or, or sickness, right? We don't, we don't know how to talk about it. And it's like, so we don't. Right. And by we, I mean, I think Americans, especially white Americans, are a very particularly, uh-huh. you know, like WASP culture, I think, is a lot of this. Like the Protestant Puritan, sort of uh, right. Puritan and Protestant, Protestant yeah, sort yeah. of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because I mean, a lot of cultures have rituals, right? Yeah, um, yeah. That that are helpful in dealing with death. But like, there's a wake sometimes. 
maybe right. if you're Protestant, right? Like, right. and that's it, yeah. you know? Um, and it's, it's, there isn't this sort of like, I'm sure that in specific communities, I'm sure people do get support mm-hmm. and like, it, it depends on the family and the sure. neighborhood and the whatever, you know, I'm not saying it's like a blanket. Nobody knows uh, how to deal with this, but there isn't a built-in ritual that mm-hmm. is supportive. Yeah. Um, and so I think at least in, in, because I didn't grow up here, um, I think this is part of why I feel like I notice this so much in this yeah. country, you yeah. know, this, this inability to deal with death and, and this obsession with, um, with like buying shit to make sure you're healthy, basically, like, uh... you know, like every diet fad it's it promises some kind of health thing Mm -hmm. i mean really it's about being thin but it pretends like it's about health right um there's a bajillion i mean so many grifters with snake oil shit you know in this country who are trying to convince you that x or y is going to make you live forever or make your skin not age or like Mm -hmm. we're we're obsessed with not hey cindy crawford looks pretty good though you know, I, plastic surgery is a hell of a thing. Right. And also having, you know, pretty much 24 seven to devote to the best foods, the most organic, the the water, the, yeah. Well, being rich, rich people live a really long time. Rich people just can keep on living. So, I mean, you know, and I think that's what it's really about. It's really like, that's part of what I think the obsession with wealth in this country is about is the idea that you're going to cheat death somehow by being so rich. That's true. It's true. And then, and then even some of them who die, they're going to, you know, they're going to be frozen or whatever. Cause they have the money to do cryogenic. Exactly. Exactly. You never know. But yeah, you're, you're right on with that. And it's like the, the whole, um, you know, they say like, Oh, so-and-so actor, actor. It's like, he's like the, what a style icon. It's like, what? They have money. Right. Have exactly. <laughs> yes, <know>? exactly. <laughs> I would it's have like, incredible style too. If I had that. Exactly. Money. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's <laughs> very strange. Um, it's very strange that we have like this this intense celebrity culture that is so I think intertwined yeah. with the way that we think of money. Right. Well, that's interesting. The idea of being the observer you talk about, like not having grown up here. Yeah. And it's like it's like when uh, when Iris met Harold, it was at the bar, mm-hmm. and he was just like, and she said something like, "What are you an anthropologist?" Right. Right. Like just the <laughs> idea of like a step removed and being able to see it. But yeah, you're right on. When you're talking about buying stuff, like buying stuff for like diets. I'm thinking of two things. One, I thought you were going to say like how people just buy stuff at funerals. Like here's a 900 flowers. Yeah, that too. That too. And then also like, you know, supposedly healthy things Mm -hmm. like the impossible burger. Great. It's vegetarian. But like what's, what's in that though? Right. I mean, it's not any healthier for your heart than a burger. (laughs) It's basically, I mean, it's a great, it's a solution for vegetarians. That's fantastic. Right. Uh, But the idea that that's like automatically healthier. Yeah. You know, uh, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's strange. I mean, I think that we try to sell, I mean, and it's, it's also so tied up in our, in our healthcare system, right? We sell oh, health. Yeah. yeah. We, we don't, we don't think it's a right. We, we think it's something that to be bought yes. and sold. Yes. Yes. And sorry. And if you, you know, if you live in a low income neighborhood and you're close to uh, those fumes, sorry about that. Yeah. That's the way it is. Yep, exactly. Right. And right. we're not going to apologize. We're not going to give you more health care because of it. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I remember when I watched, I used to love the movie Aaron Brockovich. I mean, I still love huh. the movie. I think it's a great movie as a yeah, movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, and I, I just am a huge fan of Julia Roberts. I think she's like such an incredible actor. Yeah. Um, and, you know, 
in that I don't think when I was a kid watching that movie, it really, I didn't get why. Um, like I loved it for its kind of mystery and like, you know, it's this woman fighting on behalf of like all of these people and, yep. you know, raw, heroic. Um, but I don't think I understood until I moved here really how much of that movie is about the healthcare system, not on purpose. Mm -hmm. It's about, you know, pollution. Yeah. But the fact that like the company, right? Like PG&E pays for the healthcare of the people who live there mm -hmm. on this contaminated land yeah. is basically an attempt to avoid lawsuit. Right. Sure. And it's very clearly these people don't have great health care necessarily unless PG&E would be paying for it. Yeah. And so, you know, the reason that they even need to have a company pay for their health care is because there are people living on like rural land who don't mm -hmm. have a ton of money, sure. which means their health insurance probably sucks. Yes. And so all of that is like bubbling exactly. underneath, but mm -hmm. I didn't, I couldn't even conceive of that. I mean, I still, I've been living here for uh, 14 years, technically 12 full-time, 10 full-time, really. Uh, and I still want to cry every time I need to deal with insurance because it is just so yes. foreign to me. Oh, same. Israel has a lot of issues, but they have, yeah. I mean, it's not a, in many ways, it's a terrible place. The one thing they did right from very early on was socialized medicine, which yeah. isn't just them. It's just that that's how I grew up. So this was so right. weird to me. We're the outlier in so many ways. Yeah, yeah. We absolutely are. I don't, I think the majority of countries at this point have some kind of national healthcare system. But hey, we can't go communist, right? Can't go uh, socialist. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> that's the devil somehow. <laughs> it's, um, kind of random but you were talking about like contaminated land and stuff like one of the lovers who maybe was just like a a like not a love was mm -hmm. was it mac lopez yes that's that's his uh his um that's his but, stage name right so mac lopez. Who, so who is who is is he based on someone really so i mean you don't he's, have to say it if you know. he's not based on it's not someone i know um but it's a, a an actor that i really love um and he was sort of an homage to that actor uh, uh, because I wanted that actor to have an explosive career and yeah. have way more success than he actually had at the time. Okay. Now he's the star of his own TV show. So like he's, mm. it's happening for him exactly like I hoped it would mm. one day. Cause he's Which... amazing. Um, uh, uh, Zon McLaren is, is the actor. Okay. Uh, he's, I think he's, I think the show is called dark winds. Um, it's oh, okay. on a channel that like I can't access. So I'm waiting for uh, <laughs> to be able to rent it or whatever, but, um, and he's, he's just an incredible actor and I've seen him in stuff for so long and, mm -hmm. and I just love his face. <laughs> okay. Um, and so I was sort of picturing someone like mm -hmm. him, but who got really successful yeah. at a younger age. Nice. Well, send him a copy of the book. Is he, has he read it? No, and I'm I'm too nervous to. I I actually had the most magical experience after yeah. I turned in the book, um, mm. and I was like, it was like you know, four four or five months before it came out. I was walking around my mom's neighborhood. She lives in Hollywood, and I ran into him <gasps> twice outside his house. Oh my! Gosh. I didn't know it was him at for, oh, the first okay. time. I was like. I think that's him, but I'm walking past. I'm not going to be weird. Yeah. Right, right, right. And I didn't know where I was going. I was sort of walking around the hills, just 
randomly because um, I didn't know the area very well. And uh, the second, the, the day after I was doing another walk, because I walk like three to four miles every day for, Dang. otherwise I, I just, I'm, I'm very antsy. So I need to do that for my mental health. Um, and the second day I was again reading because I read while I walk because I'm weird. Um, and the second day I had like, uh, I don't think I had like a, an overshirt on. So my tattoos were showing and he just, he was coming out again from his house. So I'm assuming like maybe he was filming something, right. And had a mm. similar schedule both days or something. Yeah. Cause I was walking at about the same time. Um, and he was coming out of his house and going to his car. And this time I was like, that's him. That's definitely mm -hmm. him. Um, and, uh, and he just says nice art. Hey. And I was like, I think he's talking about that tattoos. And then I like, just, I realized like, Oh, he means my tattoos. And I yell back, thank you. Uh, huh. And so it felt like this amazing omen that I just happened to walk by him two days in a row, not on purpose. I could yeah. never remember. I don't remember where it is. Like Whoa. I could never replicate the experience, you know, yeah, it's yeah, somewhere yeah. there huh. in these Hills. I don't remember where, I don't remember what turn. It's not like I can stalk him now and I would never, <laughs> but like, it was just so random and it felt really magical. It was like one of those weird coincidence universe things. Okay. So when he said nice art, he meant your book. May ah, See? there you go. See? There See? you go. Oh, man. Well, it is a heck of a book. And there's so much about the ending that really changes everything or many things. Um, and it's... Uh, you know, the last scenes are, are beautiful ones and sad ones. You, you're sad for the potential that what, what might have been if mom would have been around. Mm -hmm. um, but just the way that you write those conversations, you write the background, the backstory for Peter, mm -hmm. who, again, is such an incredibly lovable character. Um, and, you know, and Maggie and Ariel and, and Lucia and everyone involved. And it, it just ends up being like a saga. It ends up being, you know, covering so many different years. Mm -hmm. and but it just really all comes together in the end thank you I, yeah i wonder what some of the really like cool feedback you've gotten like as in i love this character this character is so realistic or just I the think, book as a whole you know yeah i think my favorite uh i mean like i've gotten some really lovely messages from readers um if there are any readers listening just in general if you love any author who is alive mm -hmm. and they have any way to contact them do it it doesn't yes. happen all that often yes. for people and it makes all of us feel really special when that oh. does happen um i mean you know if people are famous i'm sure they get a lot of that but for most <laughs> authors the majority of authors don't get fan mail you know what i mean yeah. um so if you love a book tell the author yeah. um and uh, I think my favorites have been a few people who are uh, Jewish, queer women in their 20s who read the book and were like, I've never seen hmm. a Jewish queer woman in like my generation in a hmm. book ever. Um, and I think the way that also I Maggie agree. is like not very connected to her Judaism. So it's sort of like this ishness, you know? Yeah. And so there were, I mean, there, there have been a few of those comments and those are the ones that like, I think just, cause I didn't think about that when I was writing, mm. I didn't really realize that I was doing something new or like mm. special in that particular way. Um, and so it was been, it was just really nice to get those comments from people. Oh man. Yeah. So cool. Um, I've always wanted to be a type of, uh, I've always wanted to have taken after like Terry Gross. 
Oh, yes, yes, yes. You said in the for the other stories podcast, which ran for 272 episodes. Yes. I'll make sure to put links to it in the in the in the show Thank notes. Thank you. Yeah. Two hundred and eighty authors. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, run ran the gamut of writers, it's five years plus. And you mm-hmm. you said on the last episode, quote, I wanted to be a kind of Terry Gross or Deborah Tra- Treisman? Treisman, yeah. Treisman for emerging writers. Who was one writer? two writers, five writers that you were just like, how did I get to talk to them? That was so awesome and surreal. Ooh, uh, you know, it was mostly towards the end of the podcast that were like some surreal authors. Um, but honestly, I mean, I just, I feel like those were as special as the authors who had never published anything mm-hmm. before to me, just yeah, because yeah, yeah. it was like, it was a totally different experience, but there was just, as you know, there's something really special about like getting to talk to people about the writing that totally. they love and about their process. And there's something really special about making people feel like they are worth that time, hmm. you know, um, especially as authors, you know, get sort of less and less publicity over the years, just because budgets shrink, right. you know, uh, more and more review outlets are disappearing, you know, all of this kind of, this kind of, infrastructure that might have existed 20 years ago is sort of slowly going away and so having these kinds of spaces like yours is like really special and i'm very glad that you are doing it well i appreciate that so much and we um you know just a pleasure to be able to speak to people like you and to be able to speak to you Thank you. The, the 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 you know you do incredible things with grief it's it's a realistic grief it's a you know, like talk about it's the anger, it's the sadness, it's all, it's the shock, it's all of the above. You know, it's not a, it's not didactic. It's not, you know, a nonfiction thing about grief mm-hmm. and things we should do, but it's just, there's so many things there about family, about loss, about mother-daughter relationships, about, you know, family relationships and the different ways we make family. Mm-hmm. And so just, you know, again, just a huge um, thanks and, and congratulations on a heck of a book. Thank you. Thank you so much, Peter. And thank you for your time. This has been so wonderful. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to episode 157 with Alana Massad. You can now subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review. You can also ask for it by name using Alexa and find it on Stitcher, Spotify, and on Amazon Music. Follow me on Instagram where I'm at Chills at Will Podcast or on Twitter where I'm at Chills at Will PO1. You can watch this and other episodes on YouTube. Watch and subscribe to the Chills at Will Podcast channel. Sign up now for the Chills at Will Podcast Patreon. It can be found at patreon.com backslash Chills at Will Podcast Peter Real. My last name is spelled R-I-E-H-L. Check out the page that describes the benefits of a Patreon membership, including cool swag and bonus episodes. Thanks in advance for supporting my one-man show, my DIY podcast, and my extensive reading, research, editing, and promoting to keep this independent podcast pumping out high-quality content. The intro song for the Chills of Will podcast is Wind Down Instrumental, and the other song played on the episode is Hoops Instrumental by Matt Whitehour, and both songs are used through archesaudio.com. Please tune in for episode 158 with Javier Zamora. Born in El Salvador, he came un- unaccompanied to the U.S. at age 9 
much of the basis for his debut New York Times bestselling memoir, Solito, which has been featured on Today Show and many other publications. He holds fellowships from, among many others, Canto Mundo and the National Endowment for the Arts. The episode with Javier Samora will air later tonight on December 20th, bonus episode of sorts. For now, thanks again for listening. I hope that these uncertain days bring you texts by writers with mad skills, like Alana Massad, whose work, like All My Mother's Lovers, gives you chills at will. Thank you.